then at the Constitutional Convention, Hamilton was one of the leaders, and I think it's not unfair to say Hamilton's kind of smashing victory in a battle of the titans, which was not foreordained that Hamilton would win, was to create a powerful unitary executive. And that was uh, the basis for a fiery discussion. And it's essential to understand that discussion because you can't get impeachment without it. Um, people said, people who had signed the Declaration of Independence said, this is the fetus of monarchy. This is suited to England, not the United States. This is not right for a republic. This is an elective monarchy. And that's, you know, very agitated talk. And the people who said that lost, they were outvoted. But then it came to discuss impeachment. And the first kind of conflict was where we're going to have impeachment at all. And some people said, no, you can't, because then there isn't separation of powers. To which the response was, you've got, basically, you've got to be kidding. I'm Vanessa Sauter, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 14th, 2017. Discussion on impeachment has intensified since Donald Trump assumed office this January. But what do we know about impeachment's constitutional design and history? Cass Sunstein, professor at Harvard Law School, recently wrote an accessible account of impeachment to separate myth from history. Last week, Benjamin Wittes interviewed Sunstein on his new book, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. They discussed the framers' intent behind impeachment, what high crimes and misdemeanors actually means, the appropriate situations for which impeachment is called, and much more. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 261, A Citizen's Guide to Impeachment. Cass, let's start with uh, the House, because uh, unlike me, who has become reanimated by the subject of impeachment by contemporary politics, uh, you have been reanimated to the subject of impeachment through real estate. And I don't mean 666 Fifth Avenue. So tell us a little about your house and, and how, why this got you started on this project. Well, in uh, January of 2017, um, my family moved to Massachusetts and we decided to live in Concord. And the house that kind of rose to the top, improbably, because it needed a lot of work, uh, was uh, a focal point in the start of the American Revolution. It was built in 1763. It was one of the places the British troops came on April 19, 1775. It was almost burned down. And it kind of reeks of history, not only because of the tilted floors, but also because of the very uh, short ceilings, so that it shows you that people were a lot shorter back then. And that got me really uh, focused on the American Revolution, and I wanted to learn as much as I could about it and to see the connection between the revolution and the Constitution, which is something I think a lot of constitutional uh, scholars, so to speak, miss. They think of the revolution as a, a non-legal event, a political and uh, military event. Uh, and what I learned uh, with impeachment is kind of the focus. That was a topic I'd worked on before, but I wanted to understand it a little bit better uh, because of its evident connection with uh, shots fired in Concord, uh, you know, basically where I live, and the evident connection we can get into. But that uh, house, the kind of feeling of uh, what made America start 
what makes America unique, uh, what is American exceptionalism after all, that all kind of a tribute to Mr. Ephraim Wood, who built this house in the 18th century. So you begin the book after talking about the house uh, with uh, a methodological discussion uh, that is not specific to impeachment, but is a kind of discussion of uh, uh, different ways of thinking about constitutional interpretation in general, uh, and a defense of the idea of thinking about impeachment in pretty starkly originalist terms. And uh, for a lot of listeners who know your work more generally, that will be a little bit surprising. And I'm uh, interested in having you walk through the logic of it. Why, why, why treat these sort of in a very brief book, by the way, which you know you can really read in a sitting. Why spend time thinking about this sort of larger methodological set of questions? Uh, that implicate kind of grand constitutional theory debates? And why is the answer in this context a, a very sort of Scalia-esque originalist vision of how we should understand the impeachment clauses? Sure. So it would be possible to do a book on the uh, founding and what impeachment meant that kind of just described the history and didn't take a stand on what uh, role the history should have in current debates could just be a, you know just a fat facts text um, but I do think in this context that following the original understanding and adhering to the original meaning is is the right thing to do and uh, uh, I thought as early readers of drafts pressed me that if that's what I thought, I probably had better explain it. So there's a little discussion, which I'll summarize in a moment, of why we should be originalists, Scalia style, for the original for the impeachment issue. And here's a way to get at it: that there's nothing kind of abstractly right or wrong about originalism as a theory of interpretation. That is, it's not in the structure of the universe that you should or shouldn't be an originalist. The question, in my view, is whether originalism leads to a better constitutional order or not. And at some t moments, Justice Scalia and other originalists uh, do argue their approach makes for a better constitutional order. Now, in my view, that's actually not true, that our free speech principle would be much more modest than it now is if we follow the original meaning. Our equality principle would certainly be much more limited, and that would mean that our constitutional system would be something to be less proud of than the system we actually have, which has evolved in a way that sticks to the text, but not to the original meaning of the text. So I think that's completely uh, legitimate and good. Now, for the impeachment clause, there are two problems. First is, if you don't stick with the original meaning of the clause, where are you going to go? We don't have judicial precedents, and we never will. We don't really have a tradition with respect to impeachment. We have some practices, but the practices don't amount to a tradition that speaks of principles on which the country is converged. So where are you going to go? There really isn't a good alternative place to go. Um, the second point is the argument for following the original meaning is strengthened if the original meaning is terrific and weakened if the original meaning is uh, awful. 
And for the impeachment clause, the more I think you penetrate to the original meaning of the words high crimes and misdemeanors, the more admiration, I think, uh, is warranted for the achievements of the founding generation. I wouldn't quite use the word reverence. That's a little too theological in this context. But something between admiration and reverence probably right. And if you've got something whose original meaning is uh, more than admirable, and if you depart from the original meaning, you don't have anything at all, then probably the best approach to interpretation in terms of what makes our system best is to follow the original meaning. All right, so let's talk about that original meaning a bit. Um, and what I'd like to do is is have you walk through... Uh, have you walked through the 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 history the history that gets you to your understanding of the original meaning, and then try to push you on a few points of it on which I'm uh, a little bit less convinced than on some other points. Uh, so let's start with the distinction that you draw, which I think is fascinating and uh, clearly correct. In, uh, between American impeachment and British prior impeachment and the sort of specifically American role that the impeachment was envisioned as playing uh, in the founding era. Yes. So what happened in the United States, basically starting in 1630, but it heated up in the earlier parts of the 18th century than the famous ones where battles were fought and uh, documents were drawn up. What happened in America is that uh, the monarchical legacy, that is a notion that some people are higher than others because they are born right, that got under extremely severe pressure and republicanism was on fire in the 18th century which meant that self-government was the, uh, the guiding principle, and which meant also that the equal dignity of human beings was um, kind of bedrock, and that actually became part of the text of the Declaration of Independence. You can see, by the way, the Declaration of Independence as the culmination of the Republican triumph over monarchical thinking in America. At the same time that this was happening, and this was a thunderbolt for me to, to understand, uh, impeachment was becoming all-American in the sense that in the colonies, long before uh, bullets were fired in Concord, uh, there were other shots heard around the world, or at least around the Anglo-American world, which were impeachment proceedings in the colonies in which the Americans, as they became, were impeaching um, officials who were following orders from the crown. And think of the temerity and sheer guts that were involved in impeachment proceedings against British uh, leaders who were actually just doing what the king wanted. And we started impeaching those people. Just, just to be clear, the when when they start impeaching those people, they are drawing on a prior British tradition of impeachment, right? Completely, completely. But the British tradition had fallen into near complete disuse in the relevant period. And so it wasn't like they were transplanting something that was uh, 
you know, well-known and very much in play. It was, they had terms and they had a practice that were coming from England, no question about that, but they were uh, making it their own because it was part of republicanism. It was part of self-government. How did it differ from prior British practice? It was more squarely focused on abuse of authority, where the notion of abuse of authority was cashed out in terms of the people's capacity to govern themselves. So the the British practice wasn't in a different universe from that. In a way, you can think of it as a democratizing mechanism that England had created, but it was a little more um, ill-defined what counted as a high crime and misdemeanor and not kind of sharply understood in terms of the capacity for self-government. Okay, so now fast forward to the Constitutional Convention where uh, the the founders are uh, embed this idea of impeachment uh, as a feature of self-government into the Constitution. Uh, what you know the the discussions of it are relatively spare in in the in the convention. Um, but you have you argue that there is a very clear meaning to what they are trying to do. Uh, and so walk us through how, w- what that meaning is and, and where you derive it from. Okay, so the context is all important. And as I say, this is something that I hadn't understood until 2017, just through immersion in dusty books. So the context is the U.S. wins the American Revolution, so we are the United States of America, and that's what the Articles of Confederation announced. But the Articles of Confederation had no executive, so there's nobody to impeach in the terms that are relevant to this discussion, certainly. And that's not a coincidence. The idea of having a executive in the United States of America right after the revolution would have been too reminiscent of the very system for which lives had been lost. But but the state constitutions had executive officials of various sorts, and they were impeachable. So uh, a number of the state constitutions drawing on the Americanization of impeachment that we discussed made provision for impeachment of state officials with abuse of authority, basically, the American conception being the uh, foundation for impeachment proceedings, and they happened. So in the years between the revolution and the Philadelphia Convention, impeachment was alive and well and understood, and the words high crimes and misdemeanors were in the culture, but there was no executive at the national level to impeach. Then at the Constitutional Convention, Hamilton was one of the leaders, and I think it's not unfair to say Hamilton's kind of smashing victory in a battle of the titans, which was not foreordained that Hamilton would win, was to create a powerful unitary executive. And that was uh, the basis for a fiery discussion, and it's essential to understand that discussion because you can't get impeachment without it. Um, People said, people who had signed the Declaration of Independence said, this is the fetus of monarchy. This is suited to England, not the United States. This is not right for a republic. This is an elective monarchy. 
And that's, you know, very agitated talk. And the people who said that lost, they were outvoted. But then it came to discuss impeachment. And the first kind of conflict was, were we going to have impeachment at all? And uh, some people said, no, you can't, because then there isn't separation of powers, to which the response was, you've got, basically, you've got to be kidding, that if we don't have impeachment, then we are returning to something like the monarchical system. And the person who's most capable of extensive injustice, that is the president, can't himself be above justice, where justice meant impeachable. So stage one, powerful president. Stage two, we're going to we're going to impeach him if if stage three, finishing the sentence that the that has as a middle word if. Okay, so then the then impeachment is established, a powerful chief executive is established, and the question is what are the grounds? Late in the convention, as late as September, the only words were treason and bribery. And that was part of um, a kind of floating set of grounds that had been all over the map for many weeks. And uh, late in September, uh, George Mason said, treason and bribery, really? There are serious and dangerous offenses of which the president is capable that are not treason and bribery, especially because treason has a narrow constitutional definition. And if we have this narrow thing, then the impeachment clause just isn't usable in context in which it's indispensable. So George Mason said, let's substitute the word maladministration as an additional ground. Now, for modern readers, and I confess many people who've spent years studying the Constitution, including me, that seemed like a preposterous suggestion. Maladministration, that could mean anything. I was mistaken in that view because maladministration was actually used in the state constitutions and it did have a meaning. It couldn't mean anything at all. It meant certain forms of abuses of authority, really. Uh, James Madison, nonetheless, good lawyer that he was, said um, you can't uh, use that term. You need something sharper in order to maintain the separation of powers. And then Mason, the person who wanted serious and dangerous offenses to be covered, brought out the cavalry, and the cavalry were the terms high crimes and misdemeanors. So that was his term, and he was satisfied, and that kind of saved the day. So, so the last stage was high crimes and misdemeanors in the convention as a way of covering serious and dangerous offenses. All right, so let's talk about the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors, because there's kind of two broad understandings of it. One is that uh, it refers to high crimes and misdemeanors, or maybe three broad understanding, right? A category of high crimes, a category of misdemeanors. The other, another possible way to understand it is that the high uh, modifies both the crimes and the misdemeanors, so it covers high crimes and high misdemeanors. Uh, two separate categories. And then a third way to understand it is that the term high crimes and misdemeanors is itself a term of art that refers to only one category that is roughly synonymous with that which is impeachable, um, which is a bit of a tautology, of course. But I'm, I'm interested in your understanding of how Mason and people who used the term high crimes and misdemeanors would have understood it both linguistically and 
as a category for which they were defining impeachment as appropriate. Okay, so you could say that high, as you suggest, refers to the office, so that we'd be speaking of the president and the vice president and, you know, the cabinet. But the that can't be right given the structure because the universe of impeachable offenses extends well beyond people who occupy the highest offices. So the assistant secretary of whatever is impeachable. And, um, you know, I had a job in the White House. I was Senate confirmed. I was impeachable. And so the scope includes people who aren't at the very top. So in context, the best understanding um, relying here mostly on the ratification period is high crimes and misdemeanors was understood as a reference to egregious abuses of authority by people who are subject to the impeachment proceeding. So, you know, the the military is not impeachable. They're not covered. Um, the assistant uh, administrator for air at the Environmental Protection Agency is a, is impeachable. Um, so, insofar as we're talking about an officer to whom the impeachment clause applies, we need an egregious abuse of authority. Their focus in both the convention and the ratifying ratification debates was on the president personally, who was, of course, high in the sense of the top dog. But what was meant by high in context was it has to be a really bad thing. So if there's maladministration in the ordinary language sense, uh, that wouldn't cover, that wouldn't be covered by the term. Or if there's big mistakes of judgment, that wouldn't be covered either. Uh, we can get a little more concrete, but high in context means uh, really bad. Okay, so one one corollary to this is that it does not uh, track with the criminal law. Is that is that a fair? Uh, as in, something can be a high crime and misdemeanor, uh, whether or not it happens to violate a criminal statute. Completely, and there we have smoking guns, like really good smoking guns. Um, James Madison, and it's not wise usually to argue with him about the meaning of the Constitution and the Virginia ratification debates um, said that abuse of the pardon power is an impeachable offense. And that was at a crucial moment. And it was with sincerity. And I can tell you the specifics if you like, but it, there was no ambiguity in his mind that abuse of the pardon power is impeachable. And abuse of the pardon power is certainly not uh, at least in the absence of most unusual circumstances, certainly not itself a crime. Um, uh, it was also urged uh, by a prominent figure on a prominent occasion that if the president lies uh, about uh, a treaty in order to get Senate confirmation, uh, that's an impeachable offense. And in all important Massachusetts, and lying about a treaty isn't a violation of the criminal law. And in all important Massachusetts, all important because that's where everything started, uh, the um, uh, ratification debates included a very kind of learned and passionate explanation of how 
violations of civil liberty by the president, violations of freedom, intrusions on liberty and freedom would be an impeachable offense. And that calls back to the Declaration of Independence, which, by the way, reads a lot like articles of impeachment. You can't, after immersing yourself in the history, the Declaration of Independence, it just reads differently. It's articles of impeachment. That's what it is. And the history is uh, compatible with that view of what the culture was back then. And the declaration, just like the lying to the Senate and abusing the pardon power and abridging liberties, those things are hardly ever crimes. So one of the problems with this reading is that the term high crimes and misdemeanors, as you interpret it, seems to me to subsume the prior two terms, treason and bribery. That is, it's hard for me to imagine an argument that a treason by the president would not constitute a high crime and misdemeanor, or the president accepting bribes would not uh, constitute a high crime and misdemeanor. And so I'm, I'm curious, how, how do you square your understanding of high crimes and misdemeanors with uh, the desire to make every word, uh, to assume that every word is there for a reason, rather than is simply a superfluous uh, uh, stylistic inclusion. Most intuitive point is that we have too many smoking guns in history, not only in terms of the ratification debates, but the American practice of impeachment, both in the state after the Revolutionary War and in the colonies before the Revolutionary War, and by the way, in England, where high crimes and misdemeanors were not limited to violations of the criminal law. So we'd have to override kind of everything in order to say it's limited to crimes. You have to override Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, who referred to abuse of the public trust, not to crimes. But in terms of the text, the key word is other. So it says treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. So there's no textual uh, awkwardness in saying that treason is a high crime and misdemeanor, bribery is too, and other suggests that there are more high crimes and misdemeanors. What follows from this reading, with which I generally agree, um, is that uh, a, an act by a president is impeachable if it constitutes an abuse of power in office, whether or not it constitutes a criminal offense, that treason and bribery are subcategories of the larger uh, impeachable category, which is high crimes and misdemeanors and that there is some nexus, has to be some nexus with your public functioning as president or as a judge or as something in order for it to be cognizable as a matter of impeachment. Is that a fair summary? Yes. Uh, there are some hard questions that complicate the kind of 99% right summary. And there's one clear case that complicates the 99% correct summary. And the one clear case that means we have to expand a little beyond what you said 
is in the convention, it was urged, what if the president procures his office through corrupt means? And that was meant to be a rhetorical question, suggesting that the president is impeachable then. So if the president, you know, uh, bribes the Electoral College to vote for him in a period in which the Electoral College, let's suppose, includes bribable people, uh, then the president is impeachable, even though what he did was done before he became president. Okay, so now let's talk about Bill Clinton, because I think uh, Bill Clinton is the case in practice that most uh, that most tests your understanding of the impeachment clauses. Because here I think we can agree that Clinton engaged in activity that is criminal, for which he was impeached, which is to say a majority of the Congress behaved in a fashion that is not in keeping with your vision of the impeachment clauses, because he did not the, 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 his activity, though criminal, uh, did not uh, did not involve abuse of his powers of office as such. Is that fair? The only thing I'd add is I, I'm really not trying to do anything except track the original meaning of the clause. So I'm trying to speak for the founding generation and not to, you know. Uh, produce my own personal views about impeachability. Uh, that that's fair. I, I, I'm I'm imputing the entire founding to you, but I but I um, <laughs> but but I but but I respect that you may uh, 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 that 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 you may modestly not uh, want to take credit for the whole thing. So here's my question: Did Congress behave unconstitutionally? when it impeached Bill Clinton? The House of Representatives behaved unconstitutionally, yes. Sad to say. And so given that, and let's pause a moment to talk about what that means, because uh, on the one hand, you know, normally when we think of, of, of a major act being unconstitutional, there's a, a mechanism here that identifies that and corrects it other than a law professor 20 years later or 18, 19 years later writing a book that says the original understanding was not consistent with that act. So what, what does it mean, at, given that in fact the House did what it did, there was in response a Senate trial Right, which is the the constant what the constitutional mechanism uh, proposes. Uh, so, I mean, you can say it was an unconstitutional act, but it actually looks like the constitutional system accepted it as a legitimate act. And so, I'm interested in in you know what that means. Are we just debating angels on the head of a pin here, or is there some real significance uh, legally and constitutionally to when Congress exceeds its authority as you understand it and uh, under the impeachment clauses? I think the latter. I mean, you could have under, you know, some provisions of the Constitution, acts of Congress that aren't justiciable for one or another reason, or actions by the president that aren't justiciable. 
because no one has standing, let's say, to challenge them or because it's a political question. And still, it's fair to ask whether that act, whether done last week or 20 years ago, is consistent with the Constitution. And the fact that there's no judge available wouldn't be really relevant, given that the ultimate uh, uh, responsibility for maintaining a republic, as Franklin had it, is with, with all of us. Um, you could have uh, an impeachment, and I think we've had actually two of presidents that were in defiance of constitutional standards. And it's pretty important, if that if that is true, to be clear on that so it doesn't happen again. You, you can take your favorite example of actions by the Supreme Court or Congress or um, the president in the past which have violated the constitutional standards. People will take their pick. And the judgment, if there is a judgment that that actually was unconstitutional, that can kind of reverberate and reduce the likelihood that it'll happen again. So I want to make the argument that the Clinton impeachment was, uh, which I did not support at the time and do not support in retrospect, was A, an entirely constitutional exercise, and B, that the actual better reason not to have done it was a terrible exercise of prosecutorial discretion on the part of the House of Representatives, but that it, that, that both as a, an original matter and as a, um, a, and in another way, which is a little subtler, um, I don't, I think it makes more sense to, to, for the criticism to be a criticism of the discretionary exercise rather than of the constitutional legitimacy. So I'm going to throw this argument out there and then you attack it and explain to me why I'm wrong. But on the original matter, um, I think that there is a degree of presidential interference, albeit for personal reasons and over a personal matter with judicial processes at issue, that uh, as Charles Black describes in his impeachment book, you're simply not viable as a public officer after you've done those things. And whether you call that abuse of power or whether you call it as Black did, uh, you know, a tax cheat is just not viable as a president, I think is his, is his line. Um, I do think the line between abuse of the powers of the office and behavior in the office in a fashion that renders you non-viable as a public holder of that office is a very hard one to define as a precise matter. And so my question is, why isn't it better to think of the Clinton impeachment as this was conduct that straddles his public and private roles. It's within Congress's discretionary power to regard it as impeachment, but it's a bad exercise of that discretion given the totality of those circumstances at the time. Okay, so there are two different questions there. Maybe it would be helpful to separate them. Question number one is, 
does the House of Representatives have discretion not to impeach a president who has committed treason, bribery, or another high crime and misdemeanor? I actually think it doesn't, though it's not an obvious question. Um, the best reading, I think, of the original understanding and of the document is if you have a president who has engaged in treason or who has you know, crushed liberty in the United States, the House of Representatives has no discretion to say he's a bum, but he's our bum, and we're not going to impeach him. That's inconsistent with the constitutional plan. So an impeachable offense, once committed, is a mandatory basis for exercise of the impeachment power. I, there's a there's a counter argument, I know, but but I'm just suggesting here. I haven't earned the conclusion, but I'm sketching the historical grounds for the view. Now let's talk about uh, Clinton, and let's take, I guess we have to talk about viability. So if the president has done something that makes him not a viable president, you know, Charles Black was a great man in kind of every way, but I don't get the test that the, there's no viability uh, component to a high crimes and misdemeanor provision. So if the president does something, let's say, you know, horrific or ridiculous, that makes him not viable, that would be uh, irrelevant. The question is, has he committed a high crime and misdemeanor? He might have, but he might not have. We can imagine uh, egregious acts of, uh, let's say, uh, indignity or impropriety, which would make the presidency no longer viable, but they, they clearly wouldn't be a high crime and misdemeanor. So I'd put that the viability stuff entirely to one side. Now, the question is whether what Clinton did, and let's just stipulate that he lied under oath about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky, and also that he obstructed justice by encouraging other people, uh, let's say, to um, fail to tell the truth or to lie or not to participate in the Paula Jones proceeding. And let's suppose there just was obstruction of justice. Um, first reason I think that isn't an impeachable offense is that every example given in the founding period, I've been unable to find any, and maybe there is one, but uh, the fact that it's it's very hard to find even one of a ground for impeachment that involves an action that a president engages in that an ordinary citizen could also engage in and that doesn't involve abuse or misuse of the authority someone has by virtue of being president. So I'm suggesting if the president of the United States jaywalks or fails to pay his income taxes or uh, shoplifts or slugs his secretary of state, those are all crimes and maybe they flunk some sort of viability test. But there's a dog that didn't bark in the night, which is any kind of reference to that sort of thing as a ground for impeachment. Now, it could be responded, and it's not an unfair response, that all I've pointed to is silence, and I'm suggesting that silence is extremely informative here, and that silence is less informative than words, and that's true, I get that. But there was actually a reference by one of the early thinkers about impeachment who, who bit the bullet and said exactly what I'm saying that any conduct engaged in by a president that is engageable 
in by a private citizen, you know, assault, theft, um, uh, private crimes, those aren't impeachable offenses because they don't involve the use of presidential authority. So reading the founding era conception of what is an impeachable offense, seeing the background of the Declaration of Independence and the practices in the American colonies that uh, made impeachment an American thing, what Clinton did, you know, however uh, horrendous, uh, it's just not the kind of the category of thing they were talking about. So um, the claim is as a as a matter of constitutional interpretation to take his kind of perjury and obstruction as high crimes and misdemeanors in the sense that Madison, Hamilton, uh, George Mason, and multiple others deemed indispensable even to have a constitution. I think it's it's really hard. It doesn't. It doesn't. I, I'd go a little further. It doesn't pass the straight face test. So we've gotten this far in the conversation without mentioning the name Donald Trump, whose name also does not appear in the book. Um, but I, I do want to ask you, as you worked on this book and as you read have read the newspaper uh, across the last uh, year. Um, has that has the exercise of writing this book uh, made you think that a member of Congress uh, who takes his or her oath of office seriously would be thinking in the language of impeachment for any reason at this point? Well, I should say that I kind of deliberately wasn't thinking at all about any post-Clinton president in the context of this book. And I would have preferred not to think of any post-Nixon president because that would have given a you know distance from any contemporary political figure. And I guess Clinton counts as that. So the focus really is not on President Trump. I'm also very aware that I worked for President Obama, and I think someone who worked for President Obama has, this is just my own view, but has a special responsibility to give um, deference and respect to the president's successor, your president's successor, that is the one for whom you worked, even if you think some of his decisions are you know, wrong or worse than wrong. So the the idea of grace in politics, I think, calls for uh, caution on the part of Obama employee talking about something as grave as impeachment for President Obama's successor. Um, having said that, uh, the the book does lay out, you know, a citizen's guide whether you are uh, thinking about, a, you know. Democratic president at some point in the future, Republican in the future, this Republican thinking about you know President Bush and President Obama, whether they did anything impeachable. I think not, by the way. And so you can apply the the ideas. Uh, I'll say just a few words that are more specific than I think these frustratingly vague answers. Uh, it's clear from the founding period that three things I think which it would be most unfair to say there's reason to Thing President Trump is or will be guilty of, but three things that are kind of in the domain of current politics would be categorizable as impeachable. 
the first would be um, if a presidential candidate uh, colluded with a foreign government, and I'm using the word colluded in an ordinary language sense, cooperated with a foreign government to obtain dirt on a political opponent, that that would be an impeachable act. And apparently a low-level person, and let's hope what I think current evidence is consistent with, that President Trump had no personal involvement in any of that um, uh, I'm not sure what the right word, horror, that American citizens working with Russia to find dirt on a political opponent, that's, uh, that's in ordinary language, that's traitorous. And that's very grave. If the president personally did that, that would be an impeachable offense. So let's say, you know, the Democratic presidential candidate in 2020 works with China to find dirt on a political opponent. That's an impeachable offense. As I say, so far as I'm aware, there's no evidence that President Trump did that. So I don't want to suggest by any means that he did, but that would be impeachable. If the president fired uh, the current special prosecutor, um, then a discussion of impeachment would not be unreasonable because the ground for uh, discharge would seem to be offhand that the special prosecutor is investigating something of a very high degree of gravity that involves the president personally, possibly, and certainly officials in his own campaign and government. And so there would have to be some reason that was not about self-insulation. And maybe there would be, but that would be a very grave discharge that would justify a conversation, at least, of impeachment. If there were pardons given to uh, uh, campaign officials who were actually dealing with Russia to find dirt on a political opponent, then a conversation would also be justified by reference to Madison's kind of uh, heartfelt and very clear uh, discussion of abuse of the pardon power as an impeachable offense. As I say, those three grounds, I think, are not on the table right now. And let's hope they never will be. There is one grounds that some of us have argued should be on the table, at least as a matter of, uh, you know, I don't think all the facts are in about it. So I don't I don't have a confidence level about the factual predicate yet. But I have argued that if the uh, interactions with the law enforcement apparatus uh, beginning with demanding an oath of loyalty from the FBI director and culminating with boasting to a foreign power after firing the FBI director that you have relieved pressure on yourself by doing so and incorporating along the way a specific request to ease off an investigation uh, um, against your former national security advisor, that these are kind of prototypical, that this pattern of activity may be a kind of prototypical abuse of power of precisely the type that you are arguing here are the actual sole grounds for, uh, for impeachment. So I'd like to close, if we can, just by asking for your reflections on that possibility. Well, I have a couple thoughts, you know, kind of background thoughts. Number one, uh, that um, 
someone who's been focused on the 18th century and who worked for President Obama should be very, very cautious about saying anything about the impeachability of the successor, unless we have stuff that's very clear and doesn't have murkiness in it. Uh, the second is um, comments to people uh, about relieving pressure or about, uh, are you loyal to me? That doesn't seem within do the domain of the impeachable. That's, you know, people say a lot of stuff. And for uh, a new president to say, you're loyal to me, that could mean any number of things. And I wouldn't want to characterize that as what the impeachment clause is about. Uh, I guess I'd add also that uh, that high crimes and misdemeanors, you can complicate this a little bit, but basically we need some sort of concrete action that involves a gross abuse of authority. And uh, I think the things you've mentioned are uh, a standing ovation would not be warranted for those things, but the gross of abuse of authority that would be, I think, uh, found if there were pardons of people who interacted with Russia, if there was a discharge of the current special prosecutor, or if there was actual interaction with uh, Russia by a presidential candidate in order to get dirt on a political opponent. That, that's, that's a different order of things. If there were uses of presidential authority to abridge liberty in some egregious way, that's what they talked about in Massachusetts. Be those category of things, I think. That's one other point, which is uh, one of the kind of tertiary motivations for doing the book was, I'll confess, that people were saying in January that Trump should be impeached because, and then the list would be immensely long, and it basically meant they, they didn't like him, they didn't want him to be president. So I think whatever we think about the particular examples you gave, it's good to ask if you thought the person was like a fantastic president doing an amazing job and your favorite policymaker ever, would you still think the person was impeachable for those actions? And I think in the cases you gave, it's not easy to give a yes answer. And the reason though that's a good test is to kind of separate your approval or disapproval from the person and his job performance from your judgment about impeachment. There should be kind of neutrality principle with respect to impeachment, which is why, by the way, the Nixon impeachment was just, the Nixon almost impeachment was justified and the Clinton one, I think very hard to uh, give an a, a, a adequate explanation for. The book is Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. Cass Sunstein, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, really enjoyed it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to tweet the Lawfare Podcast, share it on Facebook, and give it a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast distribution system you may use. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening.